0: everyone, and welcome back to The Truth Perspective. My name is Corey Schenk, and joining me in the studio today are my co-hosts, Harrison Keeley. Hello. And Elon Martin. Hi, everyone. Now, today we're going to be discussing a few topics that have been on our minds lately. But to start off with, we're going to talk about the latest Trump derangement syndrome that's been plaguing the U.S., especially ever since the entire family separation crisis really blew up in the headlines in the past couple of weeks. Now. That entire crisis had started in May, or the, the family separation policy itself started in, in May uh, with Jeff Sessions announcing this new policy, but it wasn't until June 14th with the release of the Inspector General's report that the entire issue really blew up and took the media and the country by storm. Now. We could say that this is due to Trump derangement syndrome, which seems to be just postmodernism meets Trump, and then, and then chaos ensues. But a lot of it seems to me, as well, to be sort of uh, inspired by some of these fascist kind of uh, dark arts forces that are <laughs> like George Soros and them, who have been mobilizing mass protests in response to the family separation issue. So. To start off, I guess we'd want to say, what is the problem with the family separation crisis? What is it?
1: What is, uh, what is going on there? Ilan, any thoughts? Well, first of all, from what we understand, this, is, uh, this isn't something that, that's new under Trump. It, it's something that's been going on for quite a while under uh, the Obama administration. So uh, right there, there's this uh, strong virtue signaling among many on the left who are coming out against Trump for tearing families apart, who were um, trying to migrate from Mexico uh, to the U.S., primarily. And, um, you know, th- this, this hypocrisy, this, uh, this one-sidedness, I think, is uh, really indicative of just how biased and strong this uh, Trump derangement syndrome is. Because you rarely, if ever, heard any voices of dissent under the Obama administration, but somehow whenever uh, something is recognized under Trump as a problem, it becomes inflated engorged, and gorged and uh, hystericized to such degrees that, that the whole country is mobilized to acting crazy. So that right there is, to me, one of the kind of key indications that there's something, going, something else going on around here that, that you started to uh, intimate. With your introduction, Corey. Yeah, you see it in the timing
0: uh, of mass protests. So on June 14th, the IG report was released. And on the same day, uh, MoveOn.org and many progressive groups started organizing a protest called Families Belong Together, which was based on the idea that what trump was doing was just cold-heartedly separating families along the border the problem you know is that that wasn't what jeff sessions was doing his policy was dedicated to ending what he called open border an open border policy that was pursued under obama wherein any immigrant who came to the border with children basically got a free pass to enter the country and as jeff sessions said that led to all sorts of abuses where basically you show up with a kid and oh, we can't you know we can't keep you. So over the span of from, I think it was from 2013 till today he he noticed a huge increase and in, a huge influx of people bringing children to the border. Now whether that was due to just you know more families uh, escaping from Central America and Mexico or whether it was due to an opportunistic sort of predatory uh, activity is, you know, it's, it's not, it's uncertain, but at the same time, it's that those kinds of nuances are missing from, you know, the, the general debate that leads to these uh, progressive movements mobilizing and, you know, preparing for mass uh, protests so on june fourteenth they initiated these uh... families belong together protests and allegedly around hundred and fifty thousand people nationwide signed up uh... in the first thirty six hours to protest and to take action and after a couple of days this uh... movement started to morph into an occupied movement so that's when the antifa groups especially in, beginning in portland uh... blocked an ice facility and essentially held uh, federal agents hostage within the facility for about two days. Um, The Portland mayor, I can't remember his name, but the mayor himself uh, came out in support of the protesters saying that he did not uh, condone police intervention because ICE was essentially an abomination. That wasn't his words, but that's paraphrasing, saying that ICE was not uh, living up to its mandate that it was a criminal organization. And numerous other politicians echoed that same, uh, that same line, saying that, you know, the, the immigration and customs enforcement uh, was uh, an abomination, that it was illegal, you know, that it was basically, it was like a concentration camp, and that these protesters had every right to, you know, shut it down. So, uh, it wasn't until I believe yesterday that the entire crisis actually ended. So, it, you know, upwards of a, a week and a half or so of, of Occupy, and it spread throughout uh, major cities. But it touches on the fact that I think that what you see in this Trump derangement syndrome is an increasing escalation of violence and the willingness to use violence and the willingness to use uh, some terroristic methods by people who have been weaponized by the belief that, quote-unquote, Trump is Hitler. You know, if Trump is Hitler, then we have to do everything we can to stop him. And it wasn't really, in my opinion, it wasn't really until the family separation crisis that this became as uh, outrageous as it did because it touched on the moral fiber of these, you know, kind of leftist folks, and they now they can see with their own eyes when they hear Rachel Maddow crying on, on air about how Trump is taking babies and children and taking them to, quote, unquote, tender age facilities. What they, they don't hear tender age facilities, what they hear is concentration camps because that's the suggestion, you know, the suggestion in the Times uh, Magazine. Or the Time Magazine uh, article that Trump is taking this country into a place we don't we don't want to be, or when Laura Bush publishes uh, an article in the in Washington Post uh, saying that you know Trump is acting immorally and America this isn't the country that America wants to be. All of these leftists they take that message and they act on it. You know it's like these people are fishing for this response and then they get this response. And I think. Um, I think it definitely has the potential to blow up in their faces and blow up in a lot of people's faces. You know, it's this Trump derangement syndrome meets this postmodernist type way of thinking where when you see Donald Trump as a white man who's rich and who enforces rules, you immediately assume he's Hitler. That that's it. He's he's Hitler. Why? Because he's white, he's a man, and he he's rich and he enforces rules. Now, there's obviously a number of different issues that uh, arise in the you know the ICE system, and a number of different ways that that system can be abused and has been abused. But the issue at hand that these protesters are are fight are getting all revved up for is aren't those legitimate issues? What they're getting revved up for is basically this postmodernist uh, view of Trump. Um, that demands that they take action and, you know, quote-unquote, bring him down or stop him by any means necessary.
2: I think there's a few things in there to unpack. Well, first of all, with the whole Trump is Hitler thing, that, that has been hinted at in the media since before he became president. And so it's been in the public discourse and kind of germinating in people's minds for the past, like, two years. And while at first it wasn't stated explicitly you know it's getting more explicit like you said with the whole issue with the border and with child separation but as for you know how it came about i think that you can understand where it came from to begin with cuz first during during his campaign of course trump had the make america great again and america first and you had this nationalism this like nationalistic fervor almost behind the the movement that was that uh, that he cultivated to to support him, and on the left, that was that was perceived as oh my god, this seems like fascism to us, and I think you know, and well, and even on the on Sot, we were we were kind of hesitant at first too. It's like well, what's going on here? This can go this can go south really fast if things progress in a certain way. So I think that that's where the seeds of it were, is to see this kind of strong man. Who does seem to have a, a narcissistic bent to him, and a kind of um, exudes a kind of authoritarian personality, and that was reacted to by the left. Let's say it was overreacted to by the left, and it hasn't gone away. So if we tie this back into what we were talking about last week about how people perceive reality and when they encounter the unknown, the first thing that the well, the, the natural response to an unknown phenomenon like Trump is fear and like, you know, let's let's get rid of the the threat because we don't know what could come of it, so we should eliminate the threat before it poses a real threat. It's understandable in that sense. Now what has happened over time as as Trump has continued to be president is that one of the things, well, the, the main thing that Trump has done is to not be Hitler. If he was the dictator that the left thinks he is, none of these people on the left would be able to say what they are saying in the media the media wouldn't be against him there wouldn't be all these mass protests if trump was really a dictator those protests would be all those people would be in jail there'd be mass ex- executions the media would be totally um subverted they'd be taken over and and trump's own people would be put into place like it would just be madness and chaos that hasn't happened so that has discredited the whole trump is hitler narrative for the past year and a half but now we have this this border issue, which has reinvigorated the the Trump is Hitler meme, because of the, the ways in which people can make that association in their minds. And it's a very simplistic association. So we've gone from being afraid of the unknown, which is kind of understandable, to a totally ideological kind of conversion that goes on in the minds of these people, where they've got the their category in which they think, and then everything that happens is then force fit into that category. So you have images of children, you know, in cages at the border, and that automatically, for them, because they already see Trump as Hitler, brings up images of the concentration camps in Nazi, Nazi Germany and the Eastern Front, and that's horrifying. When, <laughs> like you're saying, it's just another sign of this—the kind of mass delusion that is. Trump derangement syndrome, because those pictures have been around for years. Some of those pictures were actually taken years ago. So these sorts of things have been going on for years under the presidents that they've supported, and they either weren't aware of it, or you know, it just wasn't. It didn't make news at the time because there wasn't this this drive to find everything wrong with Trump. Like on Sot, one of the pictures of the day that we had recently, it might even still be up, is the the image of. Time Magazine, I believe it was, and they're like four issues that they had of of Obama, and they're just these photographs of Obama smiling and he looks like such a nice guy. And then they've got the, the four that they have of Trump over the last year and a half. They make Trump scary, let's say. You know, the most recent one is him with the looking down at this little child and the suggestion, the implication of this image is that this is a child that Trump has separated from his parents at the border. So I just wanted to Throw that out. Well, throw that out there for for a bit more context. But to bring the postmodernism in it, maybe we can get into how exactly is a postmodern philosophy and worldview influencing this whole process. Like, what's really going on there?
0: I think that's a good question. Um, I guess maybe you'd have to unpack a little bit what uh, postmodernism is, what the you know kind of the philosophies are, and it definitely seems to be to be very utilitarian uh... and very you know just kind of open inter- to interpretation all facts are open to interpretation everything is a narrative um, that is conditioned by history class gender race and that no person can step outside of that conditioning and actually know reality as it is and i think that in terms of uh... trump derangement syndrome I think that this way of seeing the world that was you know that's been infecting universities for what 30 40 years or so if not longer and that's been spread to especially to the upper class and to a lot of uh youngsters who go through school and kind of accept it um, unconditionally is that there is no such thing as truth and that there is no such thing as facts. You don't need to investigate facts. What you go with is uh, this social constructionist uh, way of saying things that everything is just what people say it is Um, and that basically that all comes down to, to power, to power relationships. That the uh, the most important thing then is to gain that power, even if it's only subconsciously. You know, but that's the, where this nihilistic philosophy leads you, is to the idea that you know, if I say something is the way it is, if Trump makes me feel scared, and if Trump looks evil, and he's you know, he's all these things that I was told to be afraid of—white, you know, rich, quote unquote, capitalist. Um, straight, straight. Yes, if he's all these things, this heteronormative straight man, um, then you know it doesn't even matter if he isn't Hitler. He is. He's evil. He's just evil incarnate. And what matters is you is mm. you know this sort of mob using whatever it takes in order to take him from power, in order to regain power for your group, for mm. um, you know through whatever means necessary. Mm. I think that kind of. That's kind of where this Trump derangement syndrome really, really took off. That's where it found the greatest roots, I think.
2: Mm-hmm. So it really comes down to identity politics, because well, and you know, this is a pattern that uh, a pattern that Jordan Peterson points out is that postmodernism and neo-Marxism don't go together. Like they don't fit because one alleges to be a description of reality, and the other denies that any description of reality has any validity because there is no reality. So the two don't mesh philosophically, according to their physio- philosophical like principles and axioms. But they get met- meshed together, and it's really just a um, an expedient um, like marriage between these two worldviews that don't make sense. And that really only makes sense in terms of like what you said in terms of power, because all these post well, um, I don't even if a lot of these protesters and the people that actually are suffering from Trump derangement syndrome have postmodern beliefs and might, you know, from, from their college professors might think that everything's interpretation and there's, you know, there no no one interpretation is better than the other. They do think that their interpretation is better. They, they think they've got the best one. They think that they have, well, implicitly, um, in the very act of making their statements and doing the actions that they do, they are embodying um, a worldview that is... Premised on the idea that theirs is correct, that they know what is good and what is evil. That what is, like you said, what Trump represents the supreme evil because he is he embodies each of the individual things that are identified by um, like postmodern neo Marxism as bad. He's part of the the rich upper class. You know, he's white. He is straight. All of these are set in opposition to the uh, the oppressed minorities. Well, and in the case of men versus women, not not even a. Um, a minority, but just all of the oppressed groups. So the oppressed groups are women, people of color, because they're a minority, um, and because of historical examples of um, of you know slavery and racism in United States in particular. Um, not, but that doesn't uh, that doesn't take into account the fact of the history of racism across the the world. It's kind of seen in this insular um, manner, as if the U.S. is the only country that actually ever existed. When a wider context shows um, that there's a lot more going on than just the just what was going on in the states, and he's straight, and of course the straight people are the oppressors of uh, the LGBTQ plus communities, and so in each of these categories, Trump Trump kind of epitomizes everything that they see as evil. So then, so that you can really understand that for people who um profess this ideology that they would see him as hitler because hitler is the most evil person that ever lived in their mind and therefore everything that is evil gets equated with hitler and it all kind of makes sense of course right in those statements you have all sorts of truth claims that uh they are, that they are basically saying this is reality these are true things and therefore we must do this so there are there are philosophical Ideas about what are what is truth, um, there are tr- claims about what is true, and then claims about what is moral and what should be done. So, like you said, there is this there is this kind of twisted ethic that is um, that is enmeshed in this philosophy that um, that implies a course of action. So, if you have an evil, then steps must be taken to get rid of that evil, and because the on the surface postmodern philosophy is amoral because there is no um intrinsic good then anything goes for what we think is good so there's still a claim that there there's still an implicit notion of what is good and what should be done even though the philosophy denies that but they they mix together in a way that may be contradictory but it's still um it works in a way because people and people do things. You know they can be contradictory, but they still end up doing things. So what we have is this situation where here's the problem. Something has to be done about it. Now this is a a recurring problem in society in general. It didn't just start with Trump, but there's this this um, dynamic that happens that and it happens in politics all the time. And Thomas Sowell brings us up like in all his books, there's the, this dynamic where someone somewhere, it could be a politician, it could be civil society, will raise an issue. This is a problem. And the immediate kind of emotional uh, significance of this problem prompts a response that is, someone needs to be, do something about this now. That something needs to be done about this. So, okay, so then it's the, it's the politician's decision, or it's the politician's um, duty or, or it's society's duty to then implement a solution to that problem. But the problem is that because it's so uh, it's so emotionally um, uh, available, like well, that's an awkward way of putting it. But it's so it's so emotionally relevant, like in in a person in the people's mind at that given moment,
1: that that then, um, well, yeah, I I just wanted to. Um, Absolutely stress that one point, and that is the emotionality of it. Uh, That along with the the subjectivity of of this entire uh, dynamic that we're looking at. Uh, Because what what you're having is, uh, you're having a lot of these politicians like Maxine Waters, and some of them who have come right out and said it, which is to repeat the mantra of Trump. He's a xenophobe, he's a racist, he's a misogynist. You hear that, folks? He's a xenophobe, he's a racist, he's a misogynist. And, and so all of these people uh, are getting triggered by this because that is what they are being told on a daily basis. And there is, there is no other reality, no other nuance, no other facts that are allowed to come into that particular equation of what is Trump. So uh, they're, they're being triggered to... To react, as you were saying, Harrison, uh, you know, do something, and and the do something part of it uh, is, you know, it, it's it's so hypocritical in the extreme because that something is ends up being counterproductive. Uh, well, do something, anything, uh, anything. anything, right? <laughs> and and anything is is coming out in the form of attacking Trump's administration, uh, attacking known conservatives. Um, and, uh, and, and really creating uh, what's uh, what's become a very dangerous situation in the U.S., increasingly dangerous all the time. Uh, you have um, Maxine, Mad Max Waters, coming out and, and speaking before people and literally inciting them to do these things. Uh, then she has to... People do do these things. They do respond. Then she gets threats. From conservatives on her life and has to cancel speaking engagements because she's afraid i mean this is uh this is the dynamic we're looking at it's 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 we're watching it uh in real time spiral completely out of control and you used the word a few minutes ago expedient uh harrison which which i think also describes the situation very well uh people think get trump out at all costs the ends justify the means um, so I uh, was watching Tucker Carlson the other day, and uh, there is this uh, this, um, uh, <laughs> this kind of new uh, support, uh, this newfound support among the major media for Stormy Daniels. This is the, the porn star who uh, allegedly had sex with Donald Trump uh, 10 or 15 years ago, and is now suing him for something. And, um, and so uh, because she's against Trump, she is, she is now this successful businesswoman who's made her way in the world. Uh, never mind that, that her career you know, demog- denigrates uh, women and objectifies women and, uh, and is part of one of the unhealthiest parts of uh, our culture. So you have these, these mainstream... Uh, pundits actually in support of Stormy Daniels, uh, you know, forgiving uh, the fact that whatever she did to make herself "quote unquote" successful is is <laughs> pretty uh, uh, pretty awful. Um, by the same token, you have these same media pundits who are standing up for uh, the uh, Miss USA beauty pageant, uh, which will take out. Uh, the, the kind of beauty uh, element of it, the, I think the kind of physical um, uh, attractiveness uh, part of the, the whole show and competition uh, and, and just get to more of what's on the inside of the woman, which is, you know, I, I, it kind of defeats the purpose of a beauty contest, however uh, slanted it is in a sense, but, uh, you know, you, you want to go in that direction? Um it's, I guess a number of things could be said about that. But the point is that there is this inherent contradiction among these same people. Uh they're they're babbling. They don't even realize how much they're in self-contradiction with one another, uh simply because it's expedient, simply because it's it serves their political goal, their will to power, if you will, to um to elevate stormy daniels in this war against trump um so that that's uh, one of the things I'm, I'm noticing about all this that there is no kind of uh, or a very low level of self-awareness in in the things that they're saying and the, the positions that they're taking uh there's no uh, or very little consistency um and that Stems from the emotionality and and their reactiveness to what it is they perceive to be the problem, yeah, I think that emotional hook is really
0: that's what's leading all these people you know like Pied Pipers just right down the the path you know to, the path to hell is paved with good intentions uh, but like you said that the that postmodern will to power it just strikes me how um, how Similar it was uh, reading Jonah Goodberg's uh, book, "The Liberal Fascism, uh, all about you know, the rise of national socialism and fascism in the in the twentieth century, and and you know, kind of comparing it to what's going on today, because this will to power, this idea that everything is uh, subordinate to action, to whatever works, to whatever gets you uh, power, it was it was very similar to what was going on then. That same mentality, which I think is basically at its core, it's just satanic. It's psychopathic. The idea that you can say there is no such thing as reality. There's no such thing as facts, or you know, and then you can. And then from there proceed to dictate to everyone else what reality really is, and make it so that it's completely one hundred percent opposite of what is real. It's you know, it's usurping the you know all the everyone's common sense it's it's taking everything to yourself as though you have godlike abilities to determine um, reality just to wipe away biological sciences to wipe away you know politics you know individual uh, responsibility belief and and then to trample on people's rights while claiming that they are oppressing you it's it's absolutely um it's it's
1: it's mind boggling in a sense well but one of the Fact uh, and a big part of this picture on the subject of immigration uh, is the type of actions that the U.S. has taken in in Central America, South America, those places where a lot of this uh, immigration uh, problem is stemming from for the U.S. Uh, with coups and support of uh, despotic leaders in Honduras, Nicaragua. Uh, various other places over the past 10, 15, 20, 30 years uh, that have made uh, conditions economically, socially, very difficult for people living in those places to stay there, who would rather stay in those places and live under a a, a, a fair um, system of governance. so that, that's an issue that just doesn't get brought up very much among these lefties who are, who are protesting. You know, they, they, They're missing something very big there, just like uh, people in Europe are missing the fact that, that their countries have, have wrought destruction in Libya and Syria and, and uh, Somalia and various other places in the Middle East, which have caused a migrant crisis. That, that doesn't seem to be part of the equation, uh, you know, it, and and that's a very big part of the equation. That's a very big part of objective reality, as we like to say here on the show. I think, uh, you
0: know, like you said, that the, those things don't get brought up by the left. And I think, you know, we're looking at a different breed entirely, Of uh, basically, maybe not necessarily a different breed, but we're looking at people who have gone psychotic, like in a clinical clinical sense. You know, if a clinician were to, you know, to sit these people down and, you know, actually, you know, go through their brains and listen to their ranting and ravings or watch videos of them naked screaming, uh, you know, <laughs> then, you know, that's, that's psychotic. And it's happening at a time when Donald Trump in office is trying to remake the global order. You have a a fairly large segment of the population going absolutely nuts. While well, Trump is trying to renegotiate upwards of twenty different trade deals um, by by waging a global trade war on on the global economy, picking fights left and right with Europe and with China, and you know with Canada and with Mexico in. in June, I think it was on June seventeenth he was supposed to have come up with a summary of of the ways forward in terms of NAFTA negotiations, but that's just one trade deal that he's obviously looking to to uh to upset in order to fulfill his you know his campaign promise to quote unquote make America great again um but you know at the same time America isn't the same country that it was you know when it was quote unquote great uh there's you know, you look at the the rise of opiate addic- uh, addictions. You look at the psychotic nature of the left. The rise in robotics, which threatens to displace like however millions of jobs in the you know in the coming years, and all the jobs that it has already replaced. Um, you know, we're living in just a completely different era, and it's not quite clear. I don't know exactly what he's doing. I can't pretend to to say that. He's, uh, you know, that his strategy will will work in order to, you know, bring jobs back to America and to to help offset all of the the decay that's occurred over the past few um, generations that have just spent all of the money on war overseas and just, you know, just spend all of their time virtue signaling while the country went to to mess. But right now. Um, and you know, in a time of so much uncertainty, it it definitely seems unwise to me to try and remake everything. It seems like a recipe for the for disaster, and not because uh, not because it's well, just to say that the reason I think that all these things are going wrong, you know, the reason that people are going insane is that it's an attempt to keep him from doing that. That is also, it's also a reaction to him trying to uh, maintain his campaign promise. But at the same time, there is a kind of a naivete about him in terms of how the world is structured, how things have worked for ever since the end of world war two, how uh, that all the different connections, the reasons for NAFTA. I mean, Henry Kissinger uh, wrote urging uh, the passage of the bill that, you know, led to NAFTA, he wrote basically that that was in response to China's, the rise of China, that he thought that it, what no matter what came, in order to, to stabilize the North uh, American continent, you would have to have cheap labor. You know, you'd have to have you'd have to have an integrated economy in order to withstand all of the global disruptions that would come with the rise of China. Now, obviously, there's also a uh, this kind of liberal elite agenda in order to, uh, you know, kind of, you know, flood people across the borders, remake everybody in, cor- in sort of like this North American type image where we're all Mexicans, we're all Canadians, we're all Americans. Um, you know, something similar to what we see in Europe uh it's you know i it seems like uh that uh, that's occurring in in america today but you know trump is going at it you know full bore and just doesn't you know <laughs> with his horns out with his horns out yeah and there's just he's just like a wrecking ball in this and the, these uh uh, the plans of these people who have been building these trade relationships for so many years that it just uh, it doesn't look like anything good can come of it.
2: <laughs> well, do we have any <clears throat> other thoughts on this whole topic, or concluding thoughts, or should we move on to the next one?
1: It's just one thought, and that is that the I think you said the timing of this is interesting. Um, you know, while while these attacks on Trump have been elevated, uh, you have. What is uh, arguably the most rancorous, uh, outrageous political war occurring in Washington D.C. that we have probably ever seen, and at least in contemporary history, uh, the the FBI and the DOJ have been uh, resisting handing over documents that are probably damning. Uh, not that there are that uh, that the House. Um, committee that's investigating uh, the Russian Trump allegations and Mueller's investigation don't already possess uh, damning documents but clearly there's this, uh, there this effort at stonewalling uh, this investigation um, on the part of the FBI uh, by not providing documents that have been requested for months um that would that would really probably put a lot of this to some resolution uh you had trey gowdy recently um speaking to um rod rosenstein and and saying release these records uh the country is you know suffering because of it uh because of your resistance to this you know get Get this, get this investigation the hell done already, uh, and uh, it was quite remarkable, quite articulate, and and probably one of the 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 most rousing <laughs> and truthful uh, statements to be heard from anybody so far on the subject. Get it the hell done already, um, but uh, that's that's not what uh, what they want to do. They want to stonewall. And they don't want to allow this investigation to go further. That would clear Trump of Russian uh, collusion allegations. And that would uh, probably um, affect the careers uh, and, and the lives of uh, dozens of people in the so-called deep state who have been acting biasly against Trump in, in coming up with this Russian collusion narrative in order to uh, to kind of stifle any power Trump would have had to affect any kind of meaningful, meaningful change. So uh, that's a big part of this. You're not hearing about it on the news the way you should hear about it. Uh, had a look at Yahoo News recently, um, and, it, and obviously it's, it's being buried beneath stories of uh, nonsense. What's our next story?
2: What do you have, Elon?
1: Well, um, I was recently on YouTube, and uh, not on YouTube personally, uh, but uh, just kind of you know how you look around for the new Jordan Peterson video or, or uh, whatever's uh, interesting and relevant and, and and being well said, and I uh, came across a academic named Victor Davis Hanson who uh, is this legitimately uh, giant of a historian, humanities professor, uh, teacher, lecturer, author. um, And he came out with uh, a number of interviews as as well uh, that are posted on YouTube uh, where he discusses the 2016 presidential election. He talks about Russiagate. The U.S. economy, the Obama presidency, he gets into postmodernism, uh, he discusses the FBI war against Trump, the media hysteria uh, that we've been discussing a little bit today. And with very little exception, uh, everything he was saying I found to be truthful and nuanced and, and he would come up with supporting information that um, that... I hadn't heard before. So, a very compelling figure, this Victor Davis Hansen, conservative, writes for the National Review and, and some other publications, also a, a, a really well known academic. Uh, James Woods recently came out with something, uh, a tweet in support of this guy and his work. Um, and as I was looking further, uh, there was this video uh, where he discusses. Uh, Israeli and, and U.S. stance against Iran, and uh, and he became all too sympathetic, uh, in my view, of uh, U.S. belligerence towards Iran and and uh, by the U.S. and Israel, and and kind of uh, gave credence to Israel's you know uh, need for survival, just basically buying into, uh, from what I could see, uh, the the kind of Zionist. Uh, uh, narrative on Iran um, that was missing some pieces. And then I looked a little further and um, it seems he he was one of the first uh, voices uh, in 2001 shortly after 9-11 to come out in support of a strong response uh, to 9-11. Not really questioning what had happened. And uh, He wrote a book called *Autumn of War*, which is basically a collection of essays uh, in in support of of the U.S. kind of going where it needs to in order to suppress terrorism, because uh, because it's a war against the U.S. And uh, you know, I found this a a little disappointing, um, to say the least. Uh, I thought, oh, here's you know, here's a here's a, a voice, and this isn't to you know, disparage him. It isn't to uh, poo poo a lot of his other work, which is terrific, I think. Um, but I found that to be quite disappointing. Um, and, uh, and then I, for some reason, I, I thought a little bit about um, the filmmaker David Lynch, because uh, he was in the news this week, and uh, he came out with a statement uh, in support of Donald Trump. Which was later qualified, but I'm going to maybe we'll talk a little bit about that. Basically, David Lynch said Trump could go down as one of the greatest presidents of history in history, and maybe it was just that statement which caused me to recollect that um, that in 2009 David Lynch did an interview with uh, on Dutch television uh, where he questioned the 9/11 narrative. And, um, and basically, uh, the interviewer asks him towards the end of this interview, uh, what do you think about the suggestion that the American government was behind it? And uh, Lynch responds, he says, 9-11 is too big for people to think about. It is something no one wants to think about. And uh, he proceeded mentioning that, with with really the best questions about that day, um, and uh, and I thought, you know, th- this is very interesting. This is a this is a filmmaker, an artist who uh, delves in in metaphysical subject matter, uh, but he's also you know he's a filmmaker. He's an entertainer as well, and yet he could see something and talk about it in a measured way, uh, in a way that this. Um, this bastion of of culture and and history, I mean Victor David Hansen, the the historian who I mentioned a few moments ago he 's written a dozen books on the subject of war and and uh, and classicism and and all sorts of subjects in some depth and and to listen to him you you can 't deny that the guy is brilliant and really informed on a lot of subjects and can speak of them off the top of his head and yet he he was uh from, from the body of work that he's done unable to do what david lynch uh this filmmaker was able to do in that one interview which is to um really question the military industrial complex the government of the US in one of what is arguably one of the most important events in in modern history uh 911 um so i i, I was just thinking about that, I was thinking about how um, how artists in some case in some cases can um, and I think he does this in some of his movies uh, can bring out truths in ways that uh, that academics don 't or or are unwilling to in some cases um, so yeah
0: that that reminds me of a quote that was, uh, I think it was attributed to Carl Rove. But uh, the idea that all of the uh, the people um, who are in the reality-based community would now have to be subordinated to the, the empire, you know, that the empire creates the reality. The empire, you know, then then everyone else has to just study what the empire does, you know, just a rough paraphrase of the quote. But I think that, you know, that's... That uh, that's where that postmodern idea enters into, like, the conservative community, I think, is through the empire, is through power, is through the use of power and, you know, the justified use of power in order to maintain the system um, and in order to maintain the way of life uh, that I think that, you know, for a very intelligent conservatives, uh, you know, and, and not even extremely intelligent conservatives, but just you know, just everyday average conservative, you know, if you brought up the fact that, oh, America went and bombed this country or whatever, you know, um, typically the, uh, the you know, the problem isn't necessarily with, you know, people dying over there um, or in the, in the, you know, you could say that maybe they think, oh, well, everything America does in a foreign country is, is okay. But really, I think, you know, what it comes down to is this idea that we, it's our group you know, that what's being done is for the group. And as long as that, as you know, if somebody else has to die for the group, you know, I think a lot of conservatives don't necessarily think that explicitly, but the moral structure is in, in so many ways, it balances that and it, it, um, it buffers you from, from that reality because as long as the flag is still flying, as long as you still have the traditions or whatever of your forebears, even if it's morphing, you know, like it did under George uh, W. Bush after 9-11, um, you know, there's still that, that opening to say that, you know, as long as we're using power for us, for our group, that it's okay. I think, th- I think the polarisation process kind of enters in there um, for conservatives in a different way than it does
2: for liberals. Well, <clears throat> just a couple comments on the Lynch thing. Um, first, uh, Lynn, well, I've got an article up here says, this is from Forbes, David Lynch doesn't need to take anything back because he never endorsed Trump in the first place. So last weekend, The Guardian ran an article featuring quotes from the filmmaker that appeared to suggest... Support for Trump Lynch said that Trump could go down as one of the most one of the greatest presidents in history, and that no one has been able to counter this guy in an intelligent way. Um, the original article didn't provide any context blah 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 the article also failed to identify what Lynch was referring to when he said that Trump had disrupted things so much, disrupted the thing so much. Presumably, Lynch meant the country's politics, and he also said that Trump's rise has shown how flawed the system really is. Uh, Lynch further said that our so-called leaders can't take the democracy forward, can't get anything done like children they are. Trump has shown all of this. So then Trump responded uh, just with from the, the one little quote that was taken a bit out of context to quote Lynch. Um and uh cuz trump had tweeted it and then at one of his his uh, little rallies he'd said that uh, L- lynch's career is going to be over after that because of course uh lynch lives in uh um like LA basically and
1: uh that's that is the bastion of liberalism
2: yeah so um so then uh, lynch wrote an open letter to trump basically saying "oh let's get let's get together and talk" Um, you, you basically you took my quote a bit out of context. Um, you said that Trump is actually causing um, causing division and um, suffering, or words to that effect. Um, and so, what I'm guessing what Lynch probably meant was that uh, well, Trump has the potential to go down as the greatest his, president in history because he has been this outsider that has come in and totally disrupted the political scene. And gotten a whole lot done. That doesn't necessarily mean that Lynch agrees with anything that he's doing. I think Lynch himself has said that he's like he's not very political. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really, um, f- you know, follow politics that much. He he says he votes, but then he kind of forgets about who he voted for. Mm-hmm. Like he said that he he supported a uh, Bernie Sanders over Hillary Clinton, for example. And he thinks he might have voted for. Well, he said he can't remember who he voted for in 2016, <laughs> um, which is kind of funny. So it's kind of a but that's—it's a typical kind of Lynch thing to say because he'll say things he—he's well, he's a—he's a free thinker, and I think that that's what really gets to the gets to the bottom of the the dynamic that you raised, Ilan, Is that um, I think there's a a very fundamental reason why someone like Lynch would question 9/11, and then someone like that conservative guy would be so uh, conservative, and that just comes down to like liberals or artistic types are open, they're open to new ideas, they're willing to push past the boundaries of, of what is socially accept- acceptable to find the truth. Like to, to, to be interested in the truth, you really need to have openness, you really need to be open to questioning what you believe to be true right now, but which could be false. Whereas conservatives don't have that to, to the same extent. Um, they've got very rigid rigid boundaries in which they can look for the truth. So they can value truth too, but it doesn't really go very far because if the boundaries say you can only stay in this box, then they'll stay in the box and they won't go outside of it. So I'm not really surprised when I when I see um, well most of pretty much everyone that is a conservative um, that says interesting and and uh, relevant things these days is pro-Israel and uh, you know pro-war. And the vast majority of them would have cheered along with the Democrats when Trump bombed Syria. I mean, they're all stupid, um, really. When it comes down to it, they have some things right just from their temperament. Because you know, no matter what your temperament is, you're going to get some things right just because that's the way you're pretty much programmed to think. So, um, so it's it's disappointing, but it's not really surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, and that and that just shows what of a what a mental box and mental prison pretty much everyone is when they're tied into a a, like a a, this like an ideological box like when you're a conservative you've got your your conservative box that you can't get out of and when you're when you're a liberal it's the same thing um... at least um... like i'd say the 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 advantage of liberals is that at least they have the greater possibility of of finding something new and and true and pointing that out and what the conservatives have going for them is that they, they, like following their lead, they're more likely to survive and to organize and manage a system that will not destroy itself from within. And those two forces have to kind of balance each other out because um, each taken to excess can lead to tyranny mm-hmm. essentially. And, um, and both are very real possibilities. So just wanted to point that out.
0: Yeah. I think that's a really good point. Yeah, we're looking at the, the battle of two, you know, halves of society that should be working together. And instead they're just, just you know, it's a house divided against itself. Mm-hmm. And obviously it can't stand. I, I, I was just thinking about um, what we were discussing about Trump and his his goal um, in order to make America great again. And, I, you know, we're looking at that, you know, that battle between conservatives who want to make America great again and, the lib- you know, the liberals who have gone psychotic. Um, And the the biggest problem seems to be is the fact that, you know, what he's trying to do may be impossible. So, not only is he up against forces that, you know, want to tear him down, but he's also working towards a goal that may not be possible in the first place. And so then, if he fails, then you have even more. You then you're starting back at square zero with even more damaged uh, politics, even more uh, partisanship, and even more hysteria. That you know, it, it just you know, it just makes you wonder where we're going to be in, in six years or whatever if he gets reelected. Um, but yeah, those are just my my thoughts about that.
2: Well, did you guys have any other stories, or should we move on to something else? You had uh, some thoughts about the skin in the game. Yeah. So I recently finished uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb's book *Skin in the Game*. He's the guy that wrote *Black Swan* and *Anti-Fragile*. And so I just wanted to read a few interesting quotes from this book. And while I'm reading them, if any of them, if you have any, if you guys have any thoughts, uh, just blurt them out and interrupt me, because um, first to say a little bit about Taleb, he is uh, originally from Lebanon. And he was a, basically like a, a traitor uh, of some sort and eventually got into math. And he's, he's really a kind of um, enigmatic guy. He's, a, he's somewhat of a philosopher and, and his writing style is very like aphoristic. Um, he's got just little maxims liberally um, scattered throughout the book and oftentimes are very clever and thought provoking. So um, I've, you know, I mean, there's tons in here that I could read out, but maybe I'll just pick one at random and then go with it. Um, first, maybe his thoughts on rationality, because he has an interesting take on what is rational and what is irrational. And I guess one of the the reasons that he brings up this issue is that oftentimes him being like an economist of sorts, um, but even though he hates economists, um, you'll often hear, economists talking about rational decision-making and they, they contrast the rational and irrational decision-making, for example, and Talib would say that these guys have no idea what they're talking about when they talk about rationality and that they are, in fact, irrational. Um, he says that, by definition, what works cannot be irrational. About every single person I know who has chronically failed in business shares that mental block the failure to realize that if something stupid works and makes money, it ca- it cannot be stupid. Um, and then he expands on that in an, in an entire chapter near the end of the book, uh, his ideas on rationality. Um, and this kind of ties into some of the thoughts that um, Jordan Peterson has, um, has spoken about in, in his talks in recent years. Okay, so he's got a, a section about religion in this chapter on rationality. It is therefore my opinion that religion exists to enforce tail risk management across generations. Now, tail risks are the like the black swans or the, the problems that can crop up or when collapses happen. So he sees religion as um, existing to manage those dangers across generations. Um, we have survived in spite of tail risks. Our survival cannot be that random. Recall that skin in the game means that you do not pay attention to what people say, only what they do, and to how much of their necks they are putting out on the line. Let survival work its wonders. Superstitions can be vectors for risk management rules. We have as potent, in, we have as potent information that people who have, who have them have survived. To repeat, never discount anything that allows you to survive. For instance, Jared Diamond discusses the constructive paranoia of of residents of Papua New Guinea, whose superstitions prevent them from sleeping under dead trees. Whether it is superstition or something else, some deep scientific understanding of probability that is stopping you, it doesn't matter, so long as you don't sleep under dead trees. And if you dream of people making... Uh, if you dream of making people use probability in order to make decisions, I have some news: more than ninety percent of psychologists dealing with dis- with decision making have no clue about probability and try, to destru- and try to disrupt our efficient organic paranoias. Now, the example that he gave about the, the Papua New Guinea is that um, I think he doesn't have it in this exact section. He must have talked about it earlier, but basically. In that region, like in, in dead trees, like snakes live or something like that. So if you sleep under a dead tree, you might get killed. So there's a, a rational, <clears throat> what we would call a rational reason for not sleeping under dead trees, but they've created a kind of mythological or religious um, taboo around it that actually enforces that, um, that action. So it, in, in the grand scheme of things, it's actually rational not to sleep under dead trees but the belief about it is irrational according to, like, the scientific mindset. Um, so he says that um, the notion of rational banded about by all manner of promoters of scientism isn't defined well enough to be used for beliefs. To repeat, we do not have enough grounds to discuss irrational beliefs. We do with irrational actions. Extending such logic, we can show that much of what we call belief is some kind of background furniture for the human mind more metaphorical than real it may work as therapy and then to conclude he says the only definition of rationality that I've found that is practically empirically and mathematically vi- rigorous is the following what is rational is that which allows for survival unlike modern theories of psycho I I can't remember what he means by that it maps to the classical way of thinking Anything that hinders one's survival at an individual, collective, tribal, or general level is, to me, irrational. So he has another principle. When you consider beliefs in evolutionary terms, do not look at how they compete with each other, but consider the survival of the populations that have them. So this is in the context of religion. So he really hates Sam Harris and Steven Pinker and all the kind of new atheists, um, he really hates them with a vengeance. If you look on his Twitter page, he's constantly insulting them um, whenever he gets the chance um, because he sees religion as kind of like Jonathan Haidt does in his book, um, what was his book? The Righteous Mind, mm-hmm. that uh, that religions actually serve a purpose and it's a survival purpose. Um, that w- And when we look at them, we just see the the irrational beliefs and kind of miss what is actually going on I think that comes down to well, it's really a pragmatic take on, on belief and um, and just life that things can work in certain periods of time, and that's better than not working. Like so, if you if we look at the we we're pretty we're pretty judgmental when we look at uh, past humans and just how primitive and and dumb they were, um, you know, from our perspective, when really they were doing something that worked and. Without them doing what worked, you know, we wouldn't be around. And this also kind of ties in with the whole idea of System 1 and System 2. Um, like Daniel Kahneman and um, what's the guy that, that wrote The Strangers to Ourselves, Timothy Wilson, how the the ideas that we have, like the the, the verbalistic ideas that go through our heads and that we write and that become our, you know, our culture, our writings, our religions, our myths, are really kind of um, well no I'll, I'll go back a bit the ideas that we have about ourselves and our own like personal motivations and the reasons we do things are we we come up with them and we come up with these really great reasons but it turns out that most of them are narratives um, that are are that we come up with after the fact to justify the 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 action that we've done for reasons that we don't actually have any awareness for so the 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 rationalizations are just window dressing on top of the behavior that is influenced by a more emotional from a, that is uh, motivated more on an on an emotional instinctive level. And we don't really have access to those most of the time. We don't. We are strangers to ourselves. We don't know why we're doing what we do, and so this perspective, when looking at religions and rationality, kind of takes it to a whole uh, wider, more general level. Um, like, oh, let's so for Talib, it looks like. Our entire religious systems are these rationalizations for um, for behaviors that are actually um, rational in nature because they they serve a purpose and they pr- and they promote human survival now maybe I think the one of the problems I had with that and it 's a problem that i've i haven 't quite figured out yet i haven't come to the answer to it is taking that kind of perspective if you look at that rationality and even truth as this kind of pragmatic thing, that seems to me to to potentially lead to a kind of, like, means justifies the end mm-hmm. or end justifies the means um, kind of perspective, where if it works, then it must be good. Mm-hmm. Now I think that's where I can draw the line, is that if something wor- works, then it's rational. But not everything that's rational is necessarily good. I think maybe that's the way I'd formulate it, because Things can work that can be totally evil um, well, and evil itself
1: works to a degree like the the trains ran on time in right. uh, in, Italy's, in in mussolini's italy
2: yeah and and even I like to go to like the, the super extremes to, to find examples like this, like if you look at serial killers now arguably well, we know that not all serial killers get caught, some of them are successful we don't know, we have no idea really what the percentage is, but even if we even if we think that even if we are super conservative in our estimate and say that maybe like one in a hundred or one in ten serial killers never gets caught, it's probably higher than that, well they're very successful at what they do, like whatever they're doing works mm-hmm. and it works for them um but that well and that's the thing it works for them it doesn't work for everyone else because it just creates mayhem in the lives of the people around them um and, and of you know the families of their victims and society in general and the the chaos and the fear that they cause, the terror that they cause, so maybe maybe even then what they're you could make the point that what they're doing doesn't really work because to be truly rational, according to this perspective is to to be doing what works not only for you but for your family and your community and he's got a um, uh, Talib has a graph. <clears throat> That goes that shows all the different levels um, from from the individual all the way up to to the ecosystem. So at the bottom of this triangle, he's got you, then your family, friends, and pets, then your tribe, then your self-defined extended tribe, and then humanity and ecosystem. So throughout the book, he's got like just peppered all these little aphorisms and and ideas about morality and what it means to be. Um, <clears throat> what it means to be kind of a good human being. So in the, in the chapter called The Logic of Risk-Taking, he says, he's got this one little maxim, unless you are perfectly narcissistic and psychopathic, even then, your worst case scenario is never limited to the loss only of your life. So basically, whatever you do affects the people around you. And so if a bad thing happens, it's not just to you. Bad things that sphere of influence goes beyond just you and your personal life. Because even in your personal life, that will affect the people in your immediate environment. I'll just read the first couple chapters of this little section. So let us let us return to the notion of tribe. One of the defect, One of the defects modern education and thinking introduces is the illusion that each of us is a single unit. In fact, I've sampled 90 people in seminars and asked them, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? Eighty-eight people answered, my death. This can only be the worst-case situation for a psychopath. For after that, I asked those who deemed the, that their worst-case outcome was their, was their own death, is your, is your death plus that of your children, nephews, cousins, cat, dogs, parakeet, and hamster, if you have any of the above, worse than just your death? Invariably, yes. Is your death plus your children, nephews, cousins, etc., plus all of humanity, worse than just your death? Yes, of course. Then how can your death be the worst possible outcome? Now, right below that, in a section called Courage courage and Precaution Aren't Opposites, he writes, I can exercise courage to save a collection of kids from drowning at the risk of my own life, and it would also correspond to a form of prudence, Were I to die, I would be sacrificing a lower layer in that triangle that I mentioned for the sake of a higher one. Courage, according to the Greek ideal that Aristotle inherited from Homer, is never a selfish action. So Talib writes, Courage is when you sacrifice your well-being for the sake of the survival of a layer higher than yours. At another point, he says that uh, courage is the only virtue that can't be faked. I think is the way he puts it. That's from memory. I might be wrong. But, uh, but that's the idea. So it's interesting, because he's got this, I think it might be because he's a Mediter- Mediterranean and he makes a big, uh, a big deal about him being a Mediterranean. He's always talking about um, Mediterranean culture and history. And it might just be the, you know, the way Mediterranean's are. Um, but he thinks in an interesting way. And the, the main point about this book, Skin in the Game, is that the only thing that really matters and that gives anyone any integrity is when they have skin in the game. Um, And what he means by that is that if there are consequences for what you do, so there's no courage, for example, in um, taking a a position or stating an opinion if there's not the possibility that there can be negative consequences for you doing so, and that the only people with true courage are the people that put themselves on the line in some way. So he brings up the example um, a few times in the book of Trump, and he says that's one of the reasons that people have supported him, is because... He, at, le- at the very least, he signals uh, skin in the game. He's not a typical politician that is um, just free free of, con- free of the consequences of their actions. Trump has presented himself as someone who has suffered consequences for his actions. So he gives the example of how like su- popul- his popularity went up when the public found out that he lost billions of dollars. Because when you've lost billion- billions of dollars, that's a scar, and a scar is a... Um, a signal of you know being in a fight and surviving basically um, it, it's it, it's it signals that to other people whereas people don't react don't react well to to like academics who are just sheltered from from any kind of um, any kind of consequence for a risk that they take so to to give just another example this is what he has to say about the kind of people maybe like like the guy that you um that you mentioned Elon that conservative guy mm-hmm. he would he would call someone like that an interventionista these are the, all the guys like Bill Crystal Thomas Friedman who were promoting for example the Iraq invasion of 2003 the removal of Gaddafi in 2011 and you know other interventions in foreign countries so this is what he has to say about them These interventionistas and their friends in the U.S. State Department helped create, train, and support Islamist rebels, then moderates, but who eventually evolved to become part of al-Qaeda, the same, very same al-Qaeda that blew up the New York City towers during the events of September 11th, 2001. Also, even there, he won't go to the Mm -hmm. direction of of the more deep 9-11 truth, but continuing on. They mysteriously failed to remember that Al-Qaeda itself was composed of moderate rebels created or reared by the U.S. to help fight Soviet Russia, because, as we will see, these educated people's reasoning doesn't entail such recursions." He writes, So, we end up populating what we call the intelligentsia with people who are delusional, literally mentally deranged, simply because they never have to pay for the consequences of their actions, repeating modernist slogans stripped of all depth. For instance, they keep using the, the term democracy while encouraging head cutters. Democracy is something they read about in graduate studies. In general, when you hear someone invoking abstract, modernistic notions, you can assume that they got some education, but not enough, or in the wrong discipline, and have too little accountability. The principle of intervention, like that of healers, is first do no harm, Even more, we will argue, those who don't take risks should never be involved in making decisions. So this leads to a little interesting discussion or excursion that he has into the, the, the topic of Vladimir Putin. So he says, as I am writing these lines, we are witnessing a nascent confrontation between several parties, which includes the current heads of state, of members of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Modern states don't quite have heads, just people who talk big, and the Russian Vladimir Putin. Clearly, except for Putin, all the others need to be elected, can come under fire from by their party, and have to calibrate every single statement and how it could be misinterpreted the least by the press. On the other hand, Putin, who has the equivalent of F.U. money, projecting a visible I don't care, uh, which in turn brings him more followers and more support. In such a confrontation, Putin looks and acts as a free citizen, confronting slaves who need committees, approval, and who of course feel like they have to fit their decisions to an immediate rating. Putin's attitude mesmerizes his followers, particularly particularly the Christians in the Levant, especially those Orthodox Christians who remember when Catherine the Great's fleet came to allow the tolling of the bells of the St. George Cathedral in Beirut. Catherine the Great was the last... Catherine the Great was the last Tsar with balls and she is the one who took the Crimea from the Ottomans. Before that, the Sunni Ottomans had banned Christians in the coastal cities under their control from ringing church bells. Only inaccessible mountain villages allowed themselves such freedom. These Christians lost the active protection of the Russian Tsar in 1917 and now are hoping that Byzantium is coming back about a hundred years later. It is much easier to do business with the owner of the business than some employee who is likely to lose his job next year. Likewise, it is easier to trust the word of an autocrat than a fragile elected official. Watching Putin made me realize that domesticated and sterilized animals don't stand a chance against a wild predator, not a single one. Forget about military capabilities, it is the trigger that counts. Historically, the autocrat was both freer and, as in the special case of traditional monarchs in small principalities, in some cases, had skin in the game in improving the place, more so than an elected official whose objective function is to show paper gains. This is not the case in modern times, as dictators, aware that their time might be limited, indulge in pillaging pillaging the place and transferring assets to their Swiss bank accounts, as in the case of the Saudi royal family. So (laughs) that's a a take on politics that you don't hear every day. Um, And it's, it's basically one that we've talked about on, you know, various of the, you know, our programs on, on Sot Radio over the years, basically identifying one of the problems of, just one of the problems of the Western, just the way Western democracy operates. Now, um, that doesn't mean, of course, that everything about this, everything about the entire system is wrong, but it is a problem when you have um, these just elected bureaucrats who are just in there for, you know, maybe four years, maybe less, maybe a bit more, who then base their entire policy making strategy on staying in office and gaining re-election. And it's all a popularity contest and they don't they don't actually have, you know, what Talib calls skin in the game in improving the place. Whereas traditionally monarchs and autocrats did. And even though, you know, Russia is a democracy with with its leader elected, it's like the president. Um, the president of Russia has a lot more power than, pers- than for example, the American president. So, from the Western perspective, Putin is an autocrat, just by virtue of the fact that the the Russian president has the powers given to him by the Americans, who basically wrote the Russian constitution in the '90s, and um, and Putin has been in power for you know almost twenty years now. And but so if you if. And in Russia, there's like the, um, I think there's been polls that most Russians even believe that uh, they prefer that type of system. Like they prefer not necessarily a monarchy, but a system with, you know, one guy that makes the decisions. And that's pretty much the way that the the Kremlin works is that like everything, well, not everything, but most things go through Putin. And like he's the, he's the final word. And when he says do something, it gets done.
0: Yeah, that's uh because it's not only external enemies that the that the ruler or the autocrat or dictator can take out more efficiently. It's internal enemies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Putin. You know, cleaned up the all of the all of those uh, oligarchs, uh, whereas, you know, in, in the U.S. or in the West, these, uh, the, the presidents or, you know, the prime ministers, they all have to cozy up to these people because they have, they have no power to boot them out. Well, they don't have backbones either, most of them, but mm-hmm.
1: they don't have the power to do it, even if they wanted to. Well, it, it seems like a system like that only really works when you have someone in power like Putin, yeah. who, who sincerely and genuinely cares about the success of his people on all levels. I mean, you know, the, uh, Russia's under all kinds of attack from the West these days, and yet Putin still finds the time, which I find remarkable, uh, he still cares enough to pay attention to a lot of the uh, minutiae of, of uh, Russia's functioning. Um, so there's that, and and just getting back to the earlier point about um, about Trump, because uh, even before you mentioned Trump, I was I was thinking about the, the survival idea uh, and and rationality versus irrationality. Um, it, it, I, I certainly don't think Trump is playing 4D or 57D chess by any means. I don't know that he's a, a brilliant man necessarily, but Having said that, uh, an argument can be made that a lot of what appears to be irrational on his part is actually very rational and even if it 's misguided even if uh, even if he 's doing the wrong things with trade tariffs in in trying to build up america 's economy because it 's a house of cards and and uh, things are going things are going to go south one way or the other um, you know, by, by any measure, he's trying to uh, fight for the survival of the U.S. I mean, he, he is rational, even, even if in many cases what he appears to be doing is irrational. Uh, he, he's, he's making the best out of, out of a lot of possible decisions that could be far worse uh, in many cases, it, or so it would seem to me. Or maybe that's just my wishful thinking. Maybe that's just my hope for him. I don't know. So, interesting, uh, interesting readings uh, about Taleb there, um, or by Taleb. Well, there's a lot more,
2: but I think maybe we can save them for another time. Mm-hmm. Maybe just one more, actually. <laughs> <laughs> this is what he said about Christianity. Um, so it appears that the church founders really wanted Christ to have skin in the game. He did actually suffer on the cross, so- sacrifice himself, and experience death. He was a risk taker. More crucially more crucially to our story, he sacrificed himself for the sake of others. A god stripped of humanity cannot have skin in the game in such a manner, cannot really suffer, or if he does, such a redefinition of a god injected with a human nature would back up our argument. A god who didn't really suffer on the cross would be like a magician who performed an illusion, not someone who actually bled after sliding an ice pick between his carpal bones. That's a reference back to a story. He says he went to a, a dinner party with with a guy that he didn't recognize, but who turned out to be um, one of those famous mag- magicians, maybe David Blaine. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember if that was him or not, but he said that he's sitting at the dinner table, and this guy t- takes out an ice pick and sticks it through his hand, and he's like, wow, that's a great magic trick. And then after the, the show... After the dinner, you know, he sees him, like, wiping the blood off of his hand, he says, and so he actually, you know, stuck the ice pick through his hand, and, and with, you know, without any, um, any sign of pain on his face, because he wanted to be a showman, right? And he, says, and he said, right there, he gained, like, a whole bunch of respect for, for this magician for actually doing this trick.
1: It, it is Blaine. He's, he's the most masochistic of yeah. them all.
2: <laughs> so, uh, so that's what that reference is. And so he continues, the Orthodox Church goes further, making the human side flow upward rather than downward. The 4th century bishop Athanasius of Alexandria wrote, Jesus Christ was incarnate so we could be made God. It is the very human character of Jesus that can allow us mortals to achieve, to access God and merge with him, becoming a part of him in order to partake of the divine. That fusion is called theosis. The human nature of Christ makes the divine possible for all of us. <clears throat> now that gets back to what we talked about like you know a month or so ago about Collingwood, because that 's basically what Collingwood said about how Christianity solves the problem of religion, and if we remember like the problem of religion that Collingwood identified was that it separates the divine from the human there 's this unpassable um, depth or gap between the human and the and the divine. <clears throat> And the the, the, sh- the form that takes, for example, in, in in Christianity even, is the is original sin. and the, the fact that we are such sinners that we cannot know God, we cannot access God. And that's where we get the whole um, in Catholicism, for instance, the whole Catholic guilt trip that uh, that we're so so human, so flawed that that nothing can bridge the gap. But actually the solution to that problem is built into Christianity itself in the figure of Jesus Christ, who is both man and and divine. And that creates the the bridge between the two. And so the way Collingwood put it, you know, Christianity solves the problem of religion itself, which thus kind of negates religion and makes it worthless because everything becomes divine. And it's, so it's this contradictory thing where when Christianity is taken to its logical conclusion, it eliminates the need for... Religion in its in its common form, but the the reason it doesn't is that that solution is only implicit in in Christianity. So those those ideas aren't stated explicitly. They're stated in this this metaphorical form, and that metaphorical form comes back to what Talib was saying about about the the beliefs of religious systems being these these metaphorical statements that aren't necessarily um, literally true but that have this survival value so arguably the reason that one of the reasons that christianity has been so successful is that it's got this, this implicit truth built into it that is expressed in this symbolic form of the the, the literal god man who saves humanity and offers the offers access to the divine through this act of sacrifice And while it may not be literally true like from the religious perspective it is literally true but from the from the philosophical perspective that is a symbol of some some other truth that you know when stated explicitly stops being religion so it's a, a kind of a complicated
0: idea but there it is it's a fascinating idea you know how it emancipates you from the problem of religion mm-hmm. But then you know you look today and you see you know without religion, you look at the identity politics of the left and' there's, and now they 've taken themselves the the idea of Christ. they are the victim, the eternal mm-hmm. victim that how can you dare deny yeah. me my victimhood, look at me and and bless me and worship me as the victim yeah
1: <laughs> and instead of going after the money changers uh, you know they're they 're kind of you know they have misplaced the uh, you know, enemies. <laughs> mm-hmm. But they don't have. Uh,
2: I think Talib would argue that they don't. They don't really have skin in the game. Mm-hmm. I can't find the quote right now because I don't have it labeled. But he he basically he says something to the effect of, "For a person to have integrity, the only way to have integrity, if you're a, a critic of capitalism, for instance, is to move to a country a, a, and and live in a system that isn't capitalist. Um, otherwise, you're just." getting the, whatever benefits from the capitalist system while pretending to criticize it on the one hand. So your actions don't match up with your beliefs. And so he's got some disdain for, for people who don't... Well, for all people who don't live what they say. And to have integrity, basically, you have to, to live what you say. And that's why he um, he's also... Uh, you can tell a bit from his discussion of, his short discussion of Putin, but he's got a lot of respect for the courage that leaders used to have because he says, he says that the transition from having military men rule nations um, was not a, a good thing for civilization. Because he said that if you look historically, like Alexander, like Julius Caesar, they were all military men, and they all became you know great rulers. But they did so because they were on the front lines, basically. They, they didn't shield themselves from the dangers of, of, mili- of military battle. Whereas today, you look at what, what we have today. We've got these interventionistas, right? These are the guys that that say, "Let's go to war," while they're sitting in their studies and sending other people to war. Mm-hmm. If you were to make if you were to make every leader who who promotes going to war go be on the front lines, you'd have a lot less, a lot fewer wars, and and you'd probably have you know better people. Um, you know, in power, people who actually understand what it is to take risks, and not only like to take risks, not only risking themselves, but for but um, but um, but making sacrifices for other people too. You know, having other people's skin in your game. Mm-hmm. So that's what would make someone actually courageous and actually have integrity. And you might have a different caliber, a different caliber of leadership from people who actually, you know, put their skin in the game.
1: Well, just getting back to the point of uh, Trump having skin in the game, uh, and and liberals having very little skin in the game, uh, you have this whole population of Americans who support and voted for Trump, uh, primarily people who are from uh, the Midwest and and other kind of non-urban, non-coastal areas, uh, who have who have suffered the consequences of of bad economics, who have known people who have gone to war and have died in their families Uh, and and they actually come out and say you know this is why i i am in support of trump Uh, because ostensibly he is uh, he is for uh less intervention uh he is for uh making america great again or at least or at least serving those people that have been underserved for so long so I guess there's some reciprocity there. They, they recognize someone who recognizes them and their own concerns, uh, which is something that, uh, you know, so many of these pundits, like you mentioned, Harrison, the, the Thomas Friedman's and of the world and, and the, and the politicians, the Hillary Clinton's of the world, they are, uh, they have no appreciation for the day to day, uh, life and, and suffering and, and, tribulations of the average american and um and so that would seem to be a big part of this
2: all right i think we're going to end it there folks so thanks for listening in and thanks to Corey for hosting we'll be back next week so make sure to tune in tomorrow to behind the headlines and everyone take care we'll see you next week
1: see ya take care everyone